The KM Community Podcast, bringing you stories from Kent's communities every week. Hello and welcome to the KM Community Podcast. I'm your host Oliver Kemp and I'll be bringing you the stories that matter at the heart of communities across the county. If you have a story you think needs to be told, just use the hashtag KM Community on social media or you can email me on okemp at thekmgroup.co.uk. This week we're talking about Brexit. As the deadline approaches and talks of a deal are being pushed by the Prime Minister, I invited on the KM's political editor Paul Francis to shed some light on what's happening and how it could affect communities across Kent. Please note this podcast was recorded on Wednesday the 16th of October, so events around Brexit negotiations may have changed. The KM Community Podcast. Paul Francis, welcome to the KM Community Podcast. Thank you. Uh, this is your first time on the Kane Community Podcast. Isn't it, it is my first time, and this is my first podcast as well. Whoa, whoa, first podcast. Well, I'm delighted then to uh, to have you on for your first podcast. Um, Paul, you've been in, kind of invited on today to talk a little bit about Brexit, the dreaded B word um, that, that people may or may not be sick of hearing about already, but obviously necessary to talk about it. Um, are we currently preparing for an election? Well, I'm not, but I think Boris Johnson might be. And if you heard the Queen's speech on Monday, in which he set out, you know, a fairly extensive programme of policy pledges and commitments, raided the cookie jar, um, a lot of people saw that as fairly obvious intent to call an election when he could. Yeah, and what does that mean now, though? Because the focus has all been on getting this deal. We're we're sort of sort of rocketing towards the October thirty first deadline. What does that actually mean? Well, now? yeah, I mean it is curious that he chose to to have a Queen's speech this week when a lot of people would have sort of looked at and said, "Well, hold on a minute, isn't the most important priority to to get this deal done before the uh, October the thirty first deadline?" Um, but I think he just saw the two things running in tandem. Because he knows that if he can't get a deal through, then there's every chance that you know, there will be an election. If it's not on his terms, it will be on the opposition terms. So he kind of used the Queen's speech to kind of you know set out his wares, and you know he got a lot of criticism for that. But I think uh, any prime minister would have probably done the same. I mean, it is a bit of an opportunity to say to the electorate, you know, this is what uh, you'll get if you vote for us. Is an, ele- an element of political point scoring is always going to happen, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, it it is true that the the, the current government is is working on an agenda which it hadn't previously agreed to and hasn't had an opportunity to set out its kind of legislative framework, as they call it. Well, that's um, jargon. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in other words, you know, we're going to shake the money tree and see what we can get. Um, so. Uh, he 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 didn't do anything wrong, but he's, some people have found it a bit curious, and the opposition parties have, have you know inevitably accused him of being you know uh, naked opportunism in uh, using the Queen's speech to uh, set out what uh, what voters might get. And um, so, I mean, part of what what we tend to do on this podcast is we speak to to people in the community and talk about the issues and the stories that are happening in Kent's communities. This is a slightly more overarching issue, but it nevertheless is going to affect communities throughout Kent, communities kind of transcending all different boundaries and talking about um, race and gender and different geographical communities, Brexit is likely to have an effect on all those things, is it not? Uh, it is. And, you know, Kent is uh, kind of the, the centre of the Brexit cauldron, if you like. Um, 
because of where it is and because of the the obvious uh, cross channel issues uh you know it's the uh, the gateway to europe as kent is often called and uh, for a lot of people being the gateway to europe is not uh, holding out much uh, by way of things they can be positive about because all they tend to hear you know possibly from people like me is tales of traffic armageddon missed doctor's appointments and uh, schools in lockdown so yeah uh, it, it kent is in a you know a very obvious uh situation where it's going to feel the, the the kind of practical impact of whatever unfolds uh after brexit i like your honesty there though that you may be one of the people that's putting those stories out in the first place but let's be honest they have to be said don't they 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 do i mean i think you know we've you know the media has had to kind of lift a few stones uh, to get to some of the detail about the contingency plans um, under the government's kind of curious code name that it has for these uh, these uh, schemes, it's, this one's called Operation Yellowhammer, which is the kind of overarching mm. um, you know scheme to uh, mitigate against uh, all these possible impacts. See, to me, Operation Yellowhammer sounds like a code word for a James Bond film. Yeah, uh, I don't think the government's promising anything quite as exciting as. <laughs> A James Bond film, but we know from these documents, which were you know first leaked and then published, in the way politicians do, um, they they get a leak and think, well, the best way to solve that is to put the whole stuff out there, which they did, eventually, um, and you know clearly a huge amount of attention and focus and energy has gone into those plans, and you know, if there is no deal, then we're quite likely to reap the whirlwind of some of the uh, threats that the government has identified. But if there is a deal, you know, some of the things might not happen at all. And there's so much uncertainty, isn't there? And I think, well, so so I, as an example of talking about us being the, the gateway of Europe and, and talking about Dover as being like a front line, I went down to Dover uh, today, actually, to, to go and speak to people on market day to find out exactly what they thought about Brexit, being in mind that is the what you could call the geographical epicentre with the port there, um, and to find out what people think. And I think largely what I found was that people were sick of hearing about Brexit and talking about Brexit. And we may be at a precipice of, of something big happening, um, whether that be deal, no deal, October 31st extension, referendum, election, whatever it might be. Um, almost every single person I spoke to didn't want to talk about Brexit. Yeah, I mean, that's hard, isn't it? Because we had a discussion about, you know, how how, how we should get the, the views of people, you know, ordinary people going about their everyday business. And we thought, well, Dover was, is, you know, they're bound to have strong opinions in mm. Dover because of where it is geographically. Uh, and so you were, as you say, dispatched to Dover Market. and uh, In the pouring rain, I might add. Well, that's, you know, tough tough work for journalists sometimes they have to operate in the, in the rain uh and you know you you kind of had a pretty difficult time sort of persuading anyone to you know talk about it but you know in a sense i think some people might feel that the arguments been all played out as it were and you know that's why this kind of uh, the rhetoric of boris johnson and the government is all about let's let's get this done i let's draw a line under it because if we draw a line under Brexit, then we can move on to other stuff. But, you know, it's, it did surprise me that he came back um, 
to reports that there hadn't been a great enthusiasm amongst uh, people to to mm. uh, share their share their views. Yeah, complete lack of enthusiasm. I think the the one sort of salient point that came out from most small businesses I spoke to was they felt that footfall was a lot smaller. Um, but that's it's difficult to maybe quantify that as being Brexit. Maybe people are being a bit more careful with their money because they're not sure what's going to happen. But that doesn't always necessarily trickle down to retail level right now anyway, does yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, if you're a small business, you know, the kind of direct tangible impacts of Brexit might be pretty distant. But, you know, uh, you, you, as you were saying earlier, before we started recording this, you know, those small businesses, you know, there is a supply chain that they're part of. Uh, and you know they may start to have difficulty getting stock and so forth, and that you know is going to possibly be a factor. But you know um, it's hard to sometimes nail these things down in terms of you know because you know we, small businesses are, are in the dark as much as any anyone. And you know I've spoken to the Kent branch of the Federation of Small Businesses several times on Brexit, and every time they say the same thing, and that's you know. We just want clarity about what's going to happen. You know, operating in the dark and not knowing what uh, what's in store is the kind of worst kind of scenario because you can't plan against it. You, if, if you know or have some kind of feeling for what might be in the offering, you might be able to plan against it, but they really don't have any kind of uh, scenario in which to judge their decisions. And arguably, though, those smaller businesses may be worse off than the larger businesses because they have less support. If you think about some of these, and there's this been massive marketing push from the government about getting ready for Brexit. We've seen we had in Maidstone was hosted a, a Brexit briefing uh, morning, encouraging businesses to get involved. But um, they tend to be kind of on the larger scale of things. We're talking about logistics and transport and things like that. You're probably not going to get the people that are running market stalls in Dover, and likely they're the ones that may be the most affected if a supply chain does get affected with Brexit. Yeah, I mean, and uh, it's interesting that Michael Gove, in his capacity as the kind of the, uh, the cabinet member in charge of Brexit, spoke, you know, a few weeks ago, possibly months now, actually, about something called uh, the Operation Kingfisher, uh, which was um, supposed to be about offering some kind of financial assistance to businesses to help them kind of over the sort of period of Brexit uncertainty. Uh, but at the time this was being discussed, he said it would be focused on the kind of large manufacturers, you know, obviously because they're big employers. And the Federation for Small Businesses said, well, hold on a minute. It's, you know, they've got economies of scale, uh, which small businesses don't have. And actually, you know, it's the, it's the small businesses who perhaps might need more help, you know, in sort of uh, bridging, the, bridging the gap between uh, pre and post Brexit. Because they may fall down the cracks if, if nobody's there to support them, and the government forget yeah. about them. Then, yeah. then that, that's that. And, and the thing about Kent is that you know the uh, the majority of businesses are small or medium sized uh, SMEs, as they call it, small and medium sized enterprises. Kent doesn't have a, a large manufacturing base at all. It's all kind of small small businesses. And speaking of plans, you know, you talk about. Um, Yellow Hammer, Kingfisher, all these, all these words, and and I know we've we've discussed before about jargon. Uh, I wanted to bring a little word up, robust. That seems to be a word that we see a yeah, lot now. What does uh, what does that mean, Paul? I'm on a I'm on a mission to get public bodies and politicians to stop using robust because they always talk about robust plans as if you know a robust plan is somehow superior to any other type of ordinary plan, <laughs> and you know it's just one of those words which is intended to communicate a a kind of feeling that you know 
because it's a robust plan, you know, it's going to be much better than any other old plan. Um, so, yeah, uh, along with uh, hubs and integrated hubs, you know, robust plans are not really helpful in explaining to people. Uh, well, it's it's unnecessary way of adding, you know, coupling words which are not necessary to do. I wonder if sometimes that that vocabulary has a trickle-down effect to the very sort of people that I was talking to in Dover today because they, they hear, they see things like Yellowhammer, Kingfisher, Hubs, Portfolio Holders. They see all these kind of political jargon tools and it makes them feel not a part of the political system. Yeah, Because they voted for something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I now mean, they just want to see it done. There's a kind of disconnect, you know, between, um, you know, what the politicians are, are saying and how they're, how they're talking and what people want. You know, I think actually... The uh, let's get it done kind of you know slogan uh, that Boris Johnson has kind of appropriated is is actually quite effective because it does tap into that kind of uh, concern of ordinary people that uh, you know while while there's all this stuff going on around Brexit negotiations uh, you know other important stuff is being uh, overlooked or disregarded. Talking about odd words though, I mean it's not just us who kind of find it confusing. Uh, well, it is. We we can be as confused as anybody because I, I don't know if you recall that last week they were talking about um, a pathway to a deal uh, when there was some glimmer of hope that uh, there would be an opportunity to get some kind of deal sorted. And then they, they talked about a pathway and then they spoke about going into tunnel negotiations. And Ooh. tunnel negotiations was a new one for me and I didn't uh, quite... <laughs> know what this meant is so subterranean meetings uh, <laughs> clandestine subterranean meetings kind of rooms buried is the, is the tunnel is the tunnel go to the pathway or is the pathway to well, the tunnel the pathway, That's the, the pathway was going to the tunnel and then who knows through the looking glass you know uh, after that but it turns out i did i had to ask mr google as you in, inevitably do <laughs> with these things and it's it's simply a way of describing meetings um that are held in private behind closed doors but you know they like to have you know important sounding words to describe them so tunnel negotiations is supposed to reflect the kind of intense nature or the discussions between the different parties and once again um you know that doesn't actually help people real people in kent understand what's going on yeah quite yeah yeah and i think you know, obviously, a lot of this is ends up being speculative because we don't actually know what's going to happen. Neither no. do small businesses, neither do communities. Neither does Boris Johnson. Neither does Boris Johnson. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Um, one of the one of the I think one of the interesting areas that perhaps hasn't been talked about as much as other areas. So logistics gets talked about a lot. Um, but one of the one of the other areas that maybe doesn't get spoken about is the um, is medicine and the care industry and how that might be affected. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the care industry is often seen, you know, is a kind of Cinderella service for a lot of people. But there's... Can you, can you just explain to it what Cinderella service well, means as well? what I mean by that is that, you know, as you say, you know, the big focus on some of these Brexit contingency plans has been all around traffic, managing congestion on roads you know through operation brock or operation stack or whatever uh, and there's a real there has been a real issue for the care industry about brexit and that is you know the inevitable situation that's been created uh, by the uncertainty around brexit is that the care industry relies heavily or has relied heavily on eu nationals taking up jobs in our kind of you know care sector in elderly homes community centers uh, because they're more willing to 
to do that kind of job. And, uh, you know, because of Brexit uncertainty, the, the kind of unresolved issue of the kind of right of um, EU citizens to remain uh, and, you know, the, the process of filling in forms and getting clearance, you know, has led to a fairly large exodus of staff in the care industry uh, leaving. And sometimes they've, the, these kind of care workers and helpers have gone back, not just because of the uncertainty over Brexit, but also because in in the last few years actually a lot of european countries have you know invested heavily in their own uh, healthcare systems uh, and the, you know the work is there for the people who have you know been been in the uk working in caring uh, jobs so you know, i've heard a lot of talk about you know you talk to hospitals you know care the care sector generally one of the things that concerns them is that they've they've seen staff leave and don't know where the replacements are going to come from. Yeah, and that and that that's huge, isn't it? You, it's not, it's not. This is not something that you can then backfill because um, there are real people who could be at risk of of illness, um, not being cared for. Yeah, if those those roles aren't aren't filled. Yeah, I, I just you know one word about the the kind of the, the combination of that with the possibility that you know there's a no deal Brexit and you know Kent Road's going to lockdown. <laughs> Then you've then you've got this supplementary but equally important issue of you know people with long term health conditions who might be uh, getting help in their own homes on a daily basis don't see their carers you know because their carers can't make uh, appointments for them or can't reach reach them because of you know road congestion and so forth and I've forgotten what the rest of your question was. We can move on. <laughs> but yeah, I mean the the point is that you know Brexit a No Deal Brexit is not just about you know traffic congestion, traffic jams and how, you know, we're going to be seeing queues, eight mile queues of lorries stretching from here to kind of the edges of London. I mean, it, that might happen, I'm not saying it won't, but, uh, you know, there are a lot of other issues at play here. Yeah, uh, and, it, and it really it comes down to who the real world effects it's going to have for people. And, and I think that's why it's important that we try and strive to find those stories, because if we do just only talk about Operation Jackhammer, Yellowhammer, whatever it's now called, and yeah. um, people f- f- sort of get so disconnected from the idea of Brexit and what it might happen. Yeah, I mean, there's an element of a kind of—is this going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy? You know, you know as, as we we talked about earlier about you know the media is contributed to this climate of fear, if you like, <laughs> uh, and you know the politicians are always arguing about kind of you know project fear and fake news in relation to Brexit. And, you know, you could say that there's actually, you know, uh, there's there's a need for more measured kind of coverage on some of these issues. But, you know, the, the media doesn't always go for more measured views, uh, you know, particularly those you know, national newspapers who have maybe kind of a political agenda to um, to pursue. Paul's taking down the nationals now. That's what's happening yeah, next. Take that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we'll survive. Speaking of balance, then, and there was one story that that um, that Kent Online reported this week, which was I think it was actually today, which was um, the fact that uh, travel lodges and hotels could be used to um, to house long term patients who needed care. Um, you told me about that yeah, story. Just this tell, is, tell us a this about is the it. Maidstone and Tunbridge Wells NHS Trust. Um, which as part of its contingency plans to um, deal with kind of um, problems around cancer treatments for cancer sufferers uh, and getting to the hospital for, you know, necessary treatment, 
has kind of provisionally booked some hotel rooms uh, close to the hospital in order that, you know, patients who might have difficulties, should there be the kind of, you know, the, the terrible uh, gridlock that uh, some of us have uh, written about, as a way of ensuring that those patients get the treatment that they, they need, you know, and on one level, you could look at that and say, oh, goodness me, you know, is it a, you know, taxpayers' money being spent on hotels. I mean, they're not expensive hotels. I'm not saying it's some kind of five-star, you know, establishment. These the Ritz. Are, the Ritz or uh, the Hilton or anything <laughs> like that. Um, you know, and the temptation there is, you know, perhaps for the story to be spun as, you know, oh, is this what, you know, our ta taxpayers' money is being spent on? And, you know, actually, you could look at it, when you look at it, in terms of, you know, the plan, it actually makes a, a bit of sense, you know, and and will offer some kind of reassurance to patients who are already kind of struggling maybe with, you know, coming to terms with their illness and, you know, anxious about whether, you know, they'll be able to get to the hospital for the treatment or appointments they need. You, know, you could look at the trust and say, well, actually, that's fair enough, you know, they'll be damned if they do and damned if they don't, you know, and the damned if they don't option is probably one they want to try and avoid. And do you think, um, you, you know, utilising hotels to potentially do that, do you, th do you think that might be an example of, of the way that central government might have to look at being bolstered by the private sector or utilising the private sector more if there are strains on public services? Well, possibly. I mean, you, I mean if, if some of the, the worst-case scenarios come to fruition... Then it, it it might be that there are lots and lots of people who need you know to for whatever reason to be um, accommodated um, you know for you know I'm trying to think of an example you know maybe if there's some kind of really serious gridlock which means that the whole motorway network is shut down completely then you've got you know people families of young children stuck in cars etc might they need to be put up for the night you know. Uh, escorted somewhere a safer environment you know that could that could be I suppose hotels but it might equally be a kind of school hall or something like that so I don't necessarily see a you know a direct connection towards you know this being a tipping point for the private sector particularly I think the agencies the, the health trusts you know all the kind of public sector agencies like councils are simply looking to get pl plans in place which will work, you know, uh, there's no, it's not being driven by kind of political ideology. Mm. You know, when you speak to councils, they adopt a kind of practical approach to these things. You know, what, what happens, you know, say if, um, you know, there are lots of motorists stuck, you know, um, need help or need support if they've got young children or uh, transporting elderly relatives around or whatever, you know, it might come to a point where they need somewhere to stay. So that could be, you know, overnight in a school hall or a community centre. Yeah, and, and, and again, you know, talking about damned if they do, damned if they don't, the idea of using hotels might not be a terrible one, especially when you consider the amount of time that it would take to procure and, and build a hospital or extra bed space, yeah. uh, the time that that project tends to, tends to take. And also, you know, you look at kind of some of the issues with building hospitals over the last few years and the collapse of large contractors and things, and you know, maybe 
maybe looking at, at working with private sectors more maybe the way that they that they go not in yeah. a necessarily ideological way but just in a way that helps bolster that service yeah I mean, it's a fair point i mean i think we should also say that you know the maidstone nhs trust is not the first hospital to have booked booked rooms the uh, east kent university's foundation nhs trust which runs the william harvey hospital in ashford has has booked rooms provisionally for staff you know for clinicians you know for consultants who are you know perhaps going to be carrying out important operations uh, and if you know a no deal brexit results in kind of traffic gridlock it might be that they can't get to the hospital themselves so they're, they're taking a precautionary measure to you know have have hotel rooms available if they're needed and uh well one more just to finish off paul um because we've been talking about Brexit for a little while now. Um, this is a Brexit special anyway, so, you know, yeah, it was bound to happen. Um, what, are your, what are your predictions? What are your predictions for what's going to happen uh, next Well, you weeks? know what? If I had a pound for every time someone asked me either what are my predictions or what's going to happen next, I'd be able to retire comfortably. Yeah, but that but, sounds like a get-out clause. Yeah, I know it is. <laughs> well, if you're asking what happens on Brexit, uh, my, my current uh, view is that there, there might be a deal... He says, hedging his bets a little bit. <laughs> there might be a deal. There could be a deal, but it won't necessarily be the complete deal. And there might be some uh, agreement for a kind of basic terms of a deal to be agreed by the EU member states and the UK. But more time is needed to f- work out the kind of technical details, as it were. Now, that was possibly always going to be a case because... Uh, the original agreement on Brexit was that there'd be a two-year transition phase when you know, issues like trade deals would be thrashed out. But the, I think politically, the, the the danger for Boris Johnson here is that he might uh, struggle to to meet his deadline of for the UK to uh, get out of Europe, do or die, as he says, by October the thirty-first. But if there is a real genuine consensus around a deal. Uh, and you know, even some of the kind of sceptical parties are brought on board. That might be seen as the kind of the, a price worth paying. You know, particularly if it's only a matter of weeks. I think the the the, the problem will come if, for some reason, uh, any deal requires a you know a longer period uh, to kind of you know, dot the i's and cross the t's. Mr. Paul Francis, thank you very much. That was a pleasure. I'll come back. You, you will. If I, I invite will. you back, you will. Yeah. <laughs> the KM Community Podcast, bringing you stories from Kent's communities every week.